Good. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. So we are uh, continuing our studies through the book of Mark. And we've come to Mark chapter 13. Now, you know, we do have the children at the back. Um, so let me just say, um, if you find noise and them disturbing, then move forward because there's acres and acres of room further forward. I feel like I've got to reach out over all these empty chairs to find you at the back there. So... Mark chapter 13, if you want a title for the message today, then it's the Synoptic Apocalypse. The Synoptic Apocalypse. And if you can't even begin to spell it, because I know I couldn't, then it's what Jesus says about the end of the age. That's what that means, what Jesus says about the end of the age. It's very closely parallel, chapter 13 in Mark, very closely parallel with Matthew 24, and with Luke 21, that's where that synoptic comes from. It's the same um, uh, passage, really, um, repeated a couple of times. We'll look at just a few variations that we see, but other, you know, basically they, they run the same, really, they run in parallel. No corresponding passage in the Gospel of John, which is significant, and we'll mention that again later. So you only find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So... Let me just set the scene for you. The, uh, Jesus and the disciples, they're enjoying a little bit of R&R. It's been a busy time, and uh, they're in Jerusalem, seeing the sights. They're wandering around uh, the temple. And it's the calm, really, before the storm. Uh, there's a bit of tension in the air, and uh, you know things are building to a climax. I think the disciples are aware of that. Something big is about to kick off. And this is just, you know, the slight pause before. And by, chap- by verse 10 of the next chapter, Jesus has been betrayed. So, you know, it's all about the kick-off, but we're not quite there yet. And so they're doing a bit of R&R, as I say. They're looking at the, the temple, and, you know, just quite naturally, one of the disciples says to Jesus, um, you know, look at these wonderful stones and what, what a great building this is. They're wandering around the temple which Herod the Great uh, has built. Um, This is the third temple on the site there, very much Roman architecture, very solid Roman architecture. And they're just saying, oh, isn't it wonderful, isn't it great? And so Jesus in verse 2 says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be torn down. Not one stone will be left upon another. I think a bit of sadness maybe in his comment Um, but also seriousness. And the disciples do not question what he says. They don't have any doubt that he's telling the truth, and they're struck with the seriousness that this temple is going to be torn down. And of course, he's absolutely right. Uh, You can go there today, and there is not a ruin of a temple to see in Jerusalem. There is no ruin there. There are a great deal of other Roman buildings uh, that are ruined and and all around the Mediterranean, of course, even in our own country here. You know, it's easy to find ruins of great Roman buildings. And in the normal course of event, there would certainly be a ruin of that temple. But it's been completely dismantled 
And uh, one of the reasons it was completely dismantled, apart from the fact that that's what Jesus said was going to happen, but one of the reasons it was completely dismantled is because there was a great deal of gold in that building. And when it was destroyed and burned, the gold seeped into the joins between the stones. And so there was an eagerness to literally lift one stone off another and find those little slithers of gold that might sit between the joints. So that's one of the reasons why it's completely dismantled. And you can go there now and you can see it's completely wiped clean. There's nothing there at all. Um, so the disciples ruminate a little bit on what Jesus says. Um, and then they're up on, uh, on top of Mount, the Mount of Olives. And if you're on the Mount of Olives, you get a... I mean, that is the classic, uh, the classic tourist image of... Jerusalem that you get today. It's taken from the Mount of Olives and you can see there's, a, there's the Kidron Valley there and then there's the, the wall of Jerusalem and then there's Jerusalem itself built up on the hill and of course there's the great Dome of the Rock um, right there now, that golden dome, that's exactly where the temple would have been and about that kind of size as well. So they would have sat on the Mount of Olives and overlooked that temple and, um, and so they asked Jesus, they asked Jesus this question, Um, that we've got in verse 4. And so these then become, that then becomes the stimulus really for the rest of the chapter here. And these are are some of Jesus' last words. This is some of his last teaching. This is Jesus really functioning in the Old Testament prophet mode. So he is, uh, you know, he is prophesying. This is Jesus as the prophet. Um, It's words for the disciples at the time. But if uh, you just drop down to the very end, verse 37, you'll see he concludes by saying, what I say to you, I say to all. So this is a a word that's spoken to the disciples at the time, but it's also a word that's spoken really for all Christendom. And that would include us as well. And what I'd say is when it comes to thinking about the end of the world and all that sort of thing, What I'd say to you is get this chapter under your belt first. Get familiar with this. Before you go on into Revelation and, you know, you start wondering about 666 and the beast and the Antichrist and all that, let's just get this one sorted out first because this is where our Lord Jesus begins. Uh, Things obviously get picked up again in the book of Revelation. Um, But this is where we're going to begin. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through... Um, this, this chapter um, bit by bit. Um, and it's the, 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 the problems, as it were, begin right there with this question. This is the question that the disciples ask in verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Um, in Matthew, they ask it, it's that, that's elaborated a little bit, and they say... You know, when's basically they're asking two, they're asking, they're asking, they've conflated two things. They're asking one question, they've conflated two ideas. When will the destruction of the temple be? That is to say, when is the Old Testament Judaism coming to an end? When is the new covenant superseding the old covenant? When is there going to be the outpouring of the Spirit? When is there the birth of the church and Christianity? That's their first, that's the first question because all those things are linked together. And then the second question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? 
That really is where they're asking, what about the second coming of Christ? When will the age end? When will human history be wrapped up? When will there be the resurrection and the final judgment and the restoration of all things and the new heaven and the new earth? So our immediate problem is that when they ask the question, they conflate two ideas. Now, we are in a different position now when we look at the scriptures. And of course, this has been the way it has for most of Christendom in that now the temple has been destroyed and all of that Old Testament Judaism has been wrapped up, but Jesus hasn't yet come. So we're in a position where we can look back and see some of what Jesus says has been fulfilled which then leaves us to look forward and say, so the rest is yet to come. But the disciples weren't in that position, and you can sympathise slightly with them, because for them, really the loss of the temple and all that goes along with it, as we, we go through, we'll see it, really, in many ways, that is the end of the world for them. It's certainly the end of their age. That is the end of the old covenant. It's the end of so much of Old Testament Judaism. So for them, really, in many ways, they, it's difficult to conceive of anything that could follow that. But for us, we've got a slightly different perspective. Now, the nature of prophecy, particularly Old Testament prophecy, prophecy in Scripture, the nature of prophecy, um, there's two things to remember. One thing is that it's rather like looking at stuff with a telephoto lens. So I don't know if you watch, you know, like sports programs, things like that, with a telephoto lens. I like watching Formula One. So they have a telephoto lens that goes right down the main straight, and the cars that come round and on that main straight, they are as clear as the cars that have come all the way down that straight, and they're just about to leave it. And you can't tell the, dif the distance between them. So you do end up with Old Testament prophecy, you end up with this um, telescoping in of the time between different events. And everything can seem to be at the same distance. And it can seem as if everything's happening at the same time. But things get telescoped up. The other thing about uh, prophecy is this principle of foreshadowing. So what tends to happen is that there are, there's an initial or maybe several initial partial fulfillments of something that build towards a final, concluding, total fulfilment. Okay, so there's this foreshadowing. Some events are foreshadowed before they actually come in reality. So that's two principles to think about, the telescoping of time and the foreshadowing. Um, so, let me just give you a bit of history, all right? Just straightforward history. So in 70 AD, so we are now here at about 33 AD, all right? So let's say within 40 years of, this, of these words being spoken, 70 AD, um, the Roman uh, armies um, surrounded um, Jerusalem. Uh, they drove, um, they captured a lot of uh, the Jewish people and took them into slavery. About two million Jewish people were captured and taken into slavery and spread right across the Roman Empire. Jerusalem itself was under siege for many, many months, 
tremendous suffering and deprivation, and about half a million people were slaughtered, half a million Jews were slaughtered when that city was finally taken. And it was destroyed, it was burnt, the temple was absolutely destroyed, as I've explained to you. The rest of the city was burnt and left in ruins. Um, and for the Jews, that was it. They were, e- they were ejected from the promised land. And really, for almost all of Christendom, anybody else preaching on this would have been able to say, and they have never returned. <laughs> so they were ejected from the promised land. They were away for 1,878 years, if you want to count it, until 1948, when a new political state of Israel was founded. But for most of Christendom, that is it. They were out and they were lost and they were scattered. Um, But they did survive and it is an absolute miracle. If you think about it, it's an absolute miracle that an ethnic group have retained their identity for all of that time. I mean, let me ask you, how many of you here are um, how many of you have your origins in, in Anglo-Saxonism? How many of you are Vikings? Yeah, what about Celts? Myself, I came over with the Normans. You're Celtish, are you? Yeah, good. There is nothing about me that is remotely Norman. There's nothing about Alice that's remotely Celtish. Um, now, look, that, all that was only, I mean, it was a 1,000 years ago. The Norman Conquest was a 1,000 years ago, you know? And you cannot identify any of those groups at all. But this ejection of the Jews was 2,000 years ago, and they are still very definitely identified, very definitely clearly identified. So there, there is a miracle in terms of the preservation of their identity as, a, as an ethnic group. Right. The reason why John's Gospel doesn't contain a chapter like this is because John's Gospel was written in about 90 to 95 AD, so very much after the events that are described here. So that's why John doesn't have this chapter. Right, let's get on with it and go through it then. Here we go. Verses 5 to 6. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. There's a sense of beware, look out. You probably even have those words. Beware, look out. The first thing we're warned about is don't be deceived. There are false messiahs. There are false Christs. There will be false gospels. There will be people coming in my name falsely. Do not be deceived. So that's the first big warning. And you haven't got to look very far before you can find lots of um, spin-offs even in our age. Different, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Christadelphians or the, the Mormons or whatever. Coming in my name, but with a, false, with a false gospel. Beware, beware. It's always been that way, always will be. Seven to eight. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the birth pangs. 
Wars and rumours of wars. Is anybody aware of a war going on anywhere? Or heard of a rumour of a war? All my life, there have been wars and rumours of wars. This is the way it is at the moment. Wars and rumours of wars. This is the way it is between the ascension of Jesus and his return. This is the period that we live in. This is the age that we live in. So wars and rumours of wars, earthquakes. If you read in Luke's gospel, Luke talks about um, uh, pestilence. Yeah, COVID is a fantastic example of pestilence. And he also talks about the phobitrons. Have I mentioned to you before the phobitrons? Look out for the phobitrons. It's not a, it's not a Doctor Who series. Definitely ought to be. The phobitrons, they are the things that generate fear. You probably have a, a term, fearful events, something like that. The phobitrons, they generate fear. So climate change would be you know, a good example of a phobitron. Great fires breaking out across Europe, massive heat waves, things like that. Or torrential rain and floods. and you know, They're phobitrons. I think probably... Um, AI being taken over by robots. That's a phobitron. They generate fear. I'm not saying they're not real, but they look out for them because they're fear generators. And what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't let your hearts get troubled by these things. He doesn't want that. Okay, we're pressing on. Um, Verses 9 through to 13. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you into the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings of my sake as a testimony to all. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say, because what you're going to say will be given to you in that hour. It will not be you who speak, that the Holy Spirit who think speaks through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rise up against their parents. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, you know, (laughs) Jesus cuts it, you know, he doesn't pull his punches, does he? It's a time of persecution. It's a time of betrayal. It's a time of persecution by the authorities. Um, So... Persecution and conflict like that is the way it is, whether whether that be religious authorities or civil authorities. Betrayal, trial. Matthew talks about apostasy. Many will fall away. Luke talks about martyrdom. Many will be put to death. So we've got the slightly easier version here in Mark. Um, But what is the purpose of all of that? Witness. The purpose is witness. So there will be a witness to all layers of society. Um, and obviously, you know, you, you can see that, um, and we read it in Acts, you know, when the disciples um, and Paul, for example, is brought before, eventually before Caesar himself. So that goes with the flow. But look at verse 10 here. Verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations to all the nations, not just to the Jewish people. The gospel is for the Gentiles, for all the nations. Um, in uh, Mark's, in Matthew's gospel, it says, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached across all the earth to every nation, every ethnos, 
every language group, every family of men and women, then the end will come. So there's a condition there that the gospel has to be preached to every nation, every people group, every language before the end will come. Now, I wonder how we're doing with that. Because there are societies like the Wycliffe Bible Translators, for example, who are absolutely working hard to make sure that the Bible is translated into every single language spoken by man on on earth. And, uh, you know, there will come a point when suddenly they're done. They'll have their board meeting and go, well, we've done that, we've done that one. Are there any more languages? Anybody got anything else to try? You know, there's going to come a point where every language on the earth now has the scriptures. Don't know how far away that's going to be. Okay, so this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every nation and then the end will come. There's your condition. Okay, 14 through to 20. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, brackets, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go and get things out of his house. And the one who is in the field, don't return back to get your coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, but these days will be a time of... Uh, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, that's right. These days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Okay. So this is where we start to get this conf- conflation of ideas. So this is a description of the seas of Jerusalem, which I've just talked to you about. When we look back, we can see the historical record. We've got an account here of the desolation and the destruction of the temple. The abomination that causes desolation. There's a great phrase for you. The abomination that causes desolation. That's a direct quote out of Daniel. When you read the account in Matthew, Matthew cites Daniel. So it's understood to be a reference from Daniel. In Luke... We don't have that phrase. In Luke, Luke says, when you see the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. So we're already beginning to see that some of that fulfillment could be in terms of the Roman armies um, surrounding Jerusalem. Um, Let me read Luke 21 because um, it's a little bit easier to grasp. Luke 21, 20 to 24 But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognise that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the cities must leave, and those who are in the countryside must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Um, And he says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Would you look at Jerusalem today and say Jerusalem is trampled under the feet of the Gentiles? 
Jerusalem is a divided city. You've obviously got the, the Muslim Dome of the Rock um, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque right there where the temple used to be. Um, you've got East Jerusalem, I think, belonging to the Palestinians, haven't you, and governed separately from West Jerusalem. You know, I'd say it's been trampled at the moment and probably has been for a long time. Um, but there's a time that comes to an end, you see, until it's that link back to the gospel being preached to all the nations. There's a point coming where the, the, the full evangelism of the world is complete. And at that point, things change. Okay. So I think verse 19, we can really begin to see it. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now, and never will be. It's a little bit difficult to look back and say, well, that point when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and the things I've just described about, you know, the um, high death toll, what have you, it's a bit bit of a reach to say that is the most terrible thing that has ever happened so you begin to think about you know wouldn't you really expect the worst to be at the end so here we've got Jesus talking about what's going what from him from his perspective is going to happen and what now from our perspective has happened but yet that seems to me to be a foreshadowing of some greater event that is yet to come so we get, this is where we begin to get this mixture of ideas and this idea that trouble for Jerusalem and trouble for Israel in the future is an indication of the end of the age, the end of our age. So what happened in 70 AD is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the future. Perhaps this is where those ideas come from. If you've come across them, this is where those ideas come from. Um, And we've got the mention of the elect as well. So he says that um, those days were foreshortened for the sake of the elect. So who are the elect? I think that's saying that in 70 AD, the the persecution by the Romans was, was, was cut short so that the Jewish nation could survive they were not wiped out completely some did escape they did survive so that's the kind of elect as it were that that they're talking about in the first fulfillment in a later fulfillment you know we are we are the elect we're the chosen nation we're the royal priesthood we're we're the ones that are chosen so now we're talking about for the sake of christendom um, the lord cutting short these days at the end Okay, verse 21, at that time, all right, then, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, there is the Christ, do not believe him. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead folk astray, if possible, even the elect, if that were possible. Take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. There seems to be a little end of the bracket. We started with look out for false Christs. We're now ending with look out for false Christs. We started with, you know, the immediate fulfilment of those words in terms of what's going to happen for the end of the 
Old Testament age. And now we're finishing with what's going to happen for the end of the current age that we're in. See the, can you see the parallels there? Can you see the overlaps there? Um, notice as well, they talk about false Christs and false prophets showing signs and wonders. I don't really think I've seen much of that. I don't, there are folk that arise, arise from time to time, mostly, I've got to say, in America, you know, that proclaim themselves to be the Christ or declare that, you know, the end of the age is going to happen on this date or what have you. Certainly they would be false prophets, but I'm not really aware of people moving in signs and wonders and also coming up with a false narrative. So I would say that's something to watch out for, to look out for. We haven't really seen um, that kind of I don't know, that sort of celebrity side of it, you know, um, which I think um, is indicated here. Um, Okay, now we start getting really serious. Verse 24, in those days. Now, I think we're clearly talking about days to come at this point. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Uh, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest ends of the earth to the furthest ends of the earth. So now we're talking about the Lord Jesus, his return. Now Now he's... He is himself prophesying his own return, referring to himself as the Son of Man. So, signs in the heavens, the sun and the moon darkened, the stars falling. Uh, Matthew talks about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky and that all nations will mourn. There will be a great uh, recognition that the end finally is coming. Uh, and it's, it's too late. Um, Luke talks about terror and apprehension falling on those that don't know the Lord. F- fear and apprehension falling on them about what's to come. So again, I think we haven't really seen signs in the heaven. Every so often there is a comet which passes through. And that's always um, something that you know, stirs everybody up. And they start thinking apocalyptically, is this the end of the world? And it doesn't really take much astronomical knowledge to understand that if you, take a, if you had a big comet that passed between the Earth and the Sun, then the Sun would be darkened. You'd have a lot of dust in, in space, in outer space, between the Sun and the Earth. And that would reduce the amount of light that's falling on the Earth. It would reduce the amount of light falling on the Moon, so the Moon would also be darkened. And when you look up in the night sky, you might look up and expect to see your, you know, your constellations, your patterns. You'd be able to trace the Big Dipper and Orion and that sort of thing. But if there's dust in space blocking out some of those stars, suddenly your, the patterns of the stars in the sky would look different. And different ones would be you know, disappearing at different times as, you, as the Earth moved around through that dust. So... And of course, meteorite showers as well. You could have the stars falling to the to the to the uh, to the earth. Um, I don't know, just an idea. But the big point is, there's no mistaking his arrival. 
There is no mistaking the return of the Lord Jesus, which is why Jesus says, if people say, oh, he's out there in the desert, don't go out to him. If they say he's in here in the inner room, don't go into him because there's going to be nothing secret at all about the return of the Lord Jesus. Every eye will see him. You're going to have some really big celestial signs of his return. Um, we're not going to miss it for sure. We're definitely not going to miss it. Um, and then he sends forth his... In fact, in, uh, in Matthew, it says about how, uh, how lightning flashes from the east to the west, so will the Son of Man be. Now, you imagine... You know, you, you don't miss the lightning, do you? When, you? when you're in a storm and the lightning flashes, you don't miss the lightning, do you? That's the kind of thing you lie in bed at night, don't you? Even with the curtains drawn and boom, the, the window lights up, you know. So Matthew's saying, you know, when, when, when Jesus returns, there's going to be no hiding it. There's going to be nothing secret about that. Nothing's going to conceal it at all. Um, and we've got then, you know, the angels being sent forth to gather elect to himself, rescue the Christians that are still alive on earth at the time, and a wider reference really to the resurrection of the dead, and the gathering of his, of his elect really from kind of both ages, as it were, from the, from, the, from the Old Testament times and from the New Testament times, his elect from both gathered together. Right, we then have this parable. You guys all with me? Good. We then have this parable. Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so... On the one hand, you've got a very clear statement that says, when you start to see signs in the heavens and the sun being darkened and the moon you know, fading to shine and that sort of thing, then you know we are really close. Okay? But on the other hand, you know, verse 30 is a little bit tricky. Um, I'll just deal with this parable of the fig tree as well. So in most of scripture, the fig tree is used as a metaphor for Israel, for, for the Jewish people. And so some people look at this and, and they see Jesus. When Jesus says, when you see the fig tree blossoming, that's a time of, of the end. Now... Um, there are other references, um, you know, elsewhere in Scripture that talk about or that might talk about, perhaps they talk about, um, a turning of Judaism to Christianity, a turning of the Jewish people to Christianity, a recognition amongst the Jewish folk that Jesus is, was their Messiah, still is their Messiah, and a turning to a turning back to God at that point. When you think about Judaism now, we're, it's really just absolutely on hold. It's just stuck on hold for the last 2,000 years. And Paul talks about how um, a veil has been drawn over them um, and you know they're, 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 they are on hold until the gospel has um, reaped 
all from the Gentile nations. And so then there's an indication that when we reach the end of that kind of world evangelism, the last people group, as it were, to be evangelized, the Jews then turn back to Christ. So maybe some people look at that and say that blossoming of the fig tree is a resurgence amongst Judaism and a turning to Christianity. So that's one thing to look for, um, definitely. Um, Yeah, verse 30. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's a bit tricky because, because that generation definitely did pass away. They definitely did pass away. Uh, you know, the, 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 the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're all gone. They're all gone. John was the last one to go. So when John is writing his gospel, and that is the very last book of the New Testament to be written, he is a very old man. He's 90-odd. He's which is unnaturally old for first century Roman world, you know. Uh, you know, you're lucky to get to 60, frankly. So he's, you know, he's really, really old. And there are lots of rumours going around, of course, that, you know, he's being preserved so that this prophecy can be fulfilled. This generation don't, doesn't pass away until I return. There's lots of speculation about Jesus returning. He does address some of that in the comments at the end of his gospel and dismisses it. Um, so then he passes away. And, and if, you, um, you know, if you go with the... This is where rumours like... If you watch Indiana Jones, for example, and um, is it the last crusade where they go looking for the, for the Holy Grail? It's John who has the Holy Grail. He's still alive looking after the Holy Grail. So this idea that the, gospel, that, that the disciple, of, you know, that the apostle John is somehow still alive somewhere else is, you know, kind of rolled on in Christianity for a long time. Anyway, I don't think he is. I'm sure he's dead and buried. Um, But it means it's a bit tricky for us. So there was a great expectation, anticipation that Jesus would return. And perhaps it is good that in every generation there should be that anticipation that, you know, that we could be the generation that sees, you know, sees this happen and sees all these things fulfilled. I think that's probably a healthy attitude to have. Um, And, you know, the spirit and the bride, if we read in the very last chapter of this book, this tremendous book um, in Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus, and Jesus responds to say, yes, I am coming quickly. So, you know, we are, I think Christianity is held in that sort of suspension of it could be any time. Um... Right, concluding, verse 32, but that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone, okay, I really want to get that very, very clearly, it's the best kept secret in the universe, only the Father knows. So anybody who says to you, I had an angelic visitation and the archangel Michael came to me and told me that Jesus, the angels don't know. You know immediately that guy is deceived. And if that person's figured it out for themselves, if they think they know, then they don't know because it says here, 
Nobody knows. Jesus doesn't know. The Holy Spirit in you, living in you, does not know. So nobody's going to prophesy, inspired by the Spirit, that Jesus is coming back on the 25th of December 2024 or whatever. You know, it's going to be false. So be assured about that. We've all been assured that we're never going to miss it when it happens, but we're also being assured we're never going to know beforehand. And so he goes on and gives another parable here. Um, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigned to each one of his tasks, commands the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows are in the morning, in case you should in case he should come and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So this parable here, keep the household running and operating and ready in the absence of the Lord and be ready and watchful for his unexpected return. Continue in a state of readiness. This is what Jesus says to all of Christendom. So it's what he says to us as well. Be in that state of readiness, be in that state of, you know, ready for his return, but continuing with the household, the work of the household. So let me say to you, for the church, if you take the household to be a metaphor for the church, keep things going, keep the church running, be busy with church stuff. You know, across, you know, I mean... I don't just mean meetings, you know, with Christian stuff, let's say. Um, be busy with all of that. Don't think, well, none of it matters because Jesus is going to return and it's all, you know, useless or whatever. Um, remember what the angels said when, at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, when, the, when Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples had stood around gazing into heaven, angels appeared and said to them, he's coming back. So get busy, get on with it. Get on with the work he's given you to do. So that's really our attitude. Let's be busy with what we've got to do, but let's be watchful and ready, not being deceived by false prophets, um, understanding the risk of persecution, opposition from authorities, but attending to the business of the church. Um, now that word, remain ready and watchful, that, that word um, is uh, gregarious, Gregarios is where we get our name uh, Gregory. Is there anybody here called Gregory? Do you know anybody called Gregory? I don't know anyone called Gregory, but Gregory is a name, all right? So Gregory is the watchman. Gregory means watchful, okay? Be watchful for the end. So it occurred to me that Greg's in the high street is a sign of the end of the world. <laughs> so when you next pass Greg's, be watchful, be ready. Okay, I'm going to just say personally. Okay, so just personally now, personally, I think I watch for four things. So number one, you probably picked them up really as I preached. Number one, I'm looking for the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth. That's the first thing I'm looking for. Number two, I'm looking for a blossoming of Judaism into Christianity. So I'm looking for a returning of the Jews to 
Christianity. I'm looking for signs of that. Number three, I'm looking for political and military jeopardy for Israel as a nation, for Jerusalem as a city. I think there will come a time when the armies are gathered around and the nations of the world have decided we've had enough of them, let's wipe them off the face of the earth. And number four, I'm looking for signs in the heavens for the sun to be darkened, for the moon, etc., etc. So they're the four things I'm looking for. Meanwhile, there's no shortage of wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and phobitrons. Okay. All right. Let's have the um, band back up, can we? Thank you very much. That's a, that was a, a hard ride, really, wasn't it, through, um, through that chapter? But I think if you can get those things under your belt and be familiar with those, then you're not so easily shaken when we start looking at Antichrist and 666 and the rise of the beast and all that, which, which we're not going to be looking at anytime soon. I might add. That's not next week. Um, I'm going to finish with um, just a few words of uh, poetry for you. You might recognise this. Um, the po- this is a, a words of poetry written by Paul Field. Um, so I can't claim them for myself. If you're as old as me, you'll recognise where they come from, but I'm not, not going to go there. <laughs> right, you guys all good? Yeah, okay. So here's my poem for you, words of poetry. There will come a morning when the sand has all run out and there will be no time to change your mind. Like a thief in the night, he will come and there will be nowhere left for you to run. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. He will come in glory, a rider in the sky, The lion and the lamb rest side by side. The children of the kingdom he will gather to himself. But the children of the darkness he will leave behind. Like a thief in the night he will come. There will be nowhere left that you can run. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun.